There's something romantic about an island, isn't there? There's something sort of magic. Or certainly a small island, I think. Yeah. At the far western point of the Bristol Channel, where the flowing waters meet with the Atlantic Ocean, stands a small, defined island of granite. Three miles long and half a mile wide, it looks like a compass point rising out of the sea, pointing due north to Coldy Island on the Pembrokeshire coast, and south to Heartland Point and the Devon-Cornwall border. From the sea, the cliffs of the island rise up steeply, white spines of rock exposed and worn by the buffeting sea winds. My name is Olivia Jones and I'm a visual artist based at Spike Island Studios in Bristol. Geology and geological visual language are influential in my work and fuel an interest in material memory and material journeys. It was the granite of the island that brought me to Lundy the hard granite stone that has been carved out of the island to build the houses that support its community, is also the focus of research by a group of geologists looking at the volcanic origins of its formation to see whether it might be able to tell us something about our future. During this recording, you will hear the voices of those with an interest and an investment in those stones, alongside the voice of the island itself and the wildlife that it's home to. We stayed in the lighthouse. It's called, I think it's called the old lighthouse because there's since another one has been built. But it's unbelievably grand in scale. They made it from granite and they built a tower for the light, which was 600 feet high. And then when they built it, they found that um, it was so high that it was in the cloud, so you couldn't see it. So they actually then, once they built it, they put a light at the top, couldn't see it, so they then put a hole in the bottom of it and put the light at the bottom, which is crazy, isn't it? In the lighthouse, it has granite fireplaces that they look as if they've come out of a stately home. I think that it was intended to give the lighthouse keepers a sense of the gravity of their role in protecting the shipping lanes and to protecting the ships by making this grand fireplace. It's truly mind-boggling. There's a piece of granite that makes the fireplace that must be five or six tons in weight. I mean, it is just unbelievable. And you can climb up to the top and watch storms come in and they sort of split around the island. It's, it's uh, stunning. The first geological map of Britain was made by William Smith in 1815. In 2015, Bristol-based artist and sculptor Rodney Harris created his own version by grinding down rock samples he'd collected into inks that could be printed to correspond with the rock beds they represented on the map. In his studio at Spike Island, Rod showed me the section of the map that contained Lundy. So I'm guided by the colours, really, because the colour determines the, or it suggests there's something different. It's quite monotone. 
you know, from on, on the surface. I mean, the granite on Lundy is really lovely. Um, it's a light, it's quite a light, bluey, bluey grey. The difficulty with making inks from rock is that you don't know what the colour is going to be. It, it doesn't always follow that the colour of the rock is the same colour as when you grind it up. Colour is a very odd thing that I don't really understand. I mean, for example, there's slate. A lot of that region is slate, isn't it? And there's probably a bit of slate on Lundy. But Cornish slate is green and Welsh slate is purple. Um, and you just think slate is slate. You think of slate being grey. But it's sort of greeny and purple. And there's also a bit of silver in Lundy. So actually, when I, you know, I start off calling it monotone, but it's got greys and blues and silvers. The reason why I like that one is because it's so... It's like the, you've got the two big fellas and then you've got little Lundy. Those types of maps, I mean, they're un, unusual maps because they're, they're exactly the sort of maps I'm used to looking at. I'm not, I'm not interested in the roads and, 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 and bridges and so on and where the towns are. It's more we colour the maps due to what rock types are on the ground beneath our feet. And so... We're in a very lucky position in the UK that from the north to the south of the UK, we cover almost all of the geological time periods and rock types that we have in Earth's history. In such a small condensed area, we can cover a whole range of different parts of Earth's history in terms of the geology. And obviously Lundy forms one part of that puzzle. My name is Professor Dougal Jerram and I run a geological company called Dougal Earth in the UK, but I'm also a research professor at the University of Oslo in a research centre called the Centre for Earth Evolution and Dynamics. And within that centre, we look at volcanoes and how volcanoes have affected climate through Earth's history. So one of the areas of research that I've kind of involved in ever since I started geology, really, was um, looking at the fascinating volcanic rocks that we have in the British Isles. These include the islands of Skye Rum in Scotland, uh, the Antrim flood basalts and the Giant's Causeway in, in Ireland. But also the furthest south expression of this volcanism is on the island of Lundy. So it's always been somewhere that I've wanted to go and visit. We have a, uh, a research project underway funded by the Norwegian Research Council called Ashlantic. It's quite a catchy title. It's all about um, trying to link the products from some of the explosive volcanic eruptions that happened in the past around you know, the British Isles and, and off in Greenland to some of the deposits that we get in places like Denmark, in, in some of the rocks that we explore in offshore in the North Sea and, and the Norwegian margin. And even all the way up to the island of Svalbard in the Arctic, we find rocks that have expressions of this volcanism. And what happens when you have an explosive eruption is you, you send small shards of volcanic material up into the high atmosphere and it gets distributed around the planet. And where this drops out of the sky in seas and oceans, it forms thin layers 
uh, within the sediments that get buried through time and these are called ash layers so hence the hence the term ashlantic so we're looking at the record around about 56 55 million years ago when there was a lot of volcanism happening at the onset of the breakup between Europe and America and during this volcanism there were big explosive events that caused large eruptions sending ash out into the surrounding sedimentary basins and we've been looking at trying to link some of these ash layers with the actual volcanic centers and and interestingly the Isle of Lundy just off the Devon coast is one of these volcanic centers that was active in and around this particular time. The interesting thing about geologists is that if you ask them to describe or to name a particular rock they they don't tend to do it because it's very hard to say what a type of rock is or to be absolutely specific. I mean they would be able to say like it's a limestone for example but to go quite specific is quite difficult but it helps you to understand where you are, you know. This kind of gives you a deeper sense of where you are when you're with a geologist, I think. My name is Morgan Jones. Uh, I'm a geologist at the Centre for Earth Evolution Dynamics at the University of Oslo. My research is in something called large igneous provinces, which are periods in Earth history when a lot of magma has come to the surface in a very short space and time and how they uh, interact with the environment and various climate cycles. The best estimate that we have in terms of volume of magma that came to the surface between 60 and 54 million years ago is about 10 million cubic kilometres of magma. So I did a little bit of maths. It would be the same as if you drew a direct line from London to Birmingham. So that's about 200 kilometers. And that would be one side of a cube that would then go, so 200 kilometers uh, London to Birmingham, probably about another 200 Birmingham to Bristol, and then 200 kilometers in, into the air and that much magma. Is what, is what we're talking about. It's a, it's a huge amount of, of magma to have come, come to the surface. Now, in the Isle of Lundy, it's actually, we're looking deep inside what was probably an ancient volcanic center. So a lot of the material that built up the volcano has eroded down through time. We're talking sort of 56, 57 million years worth of time eroding the volcanic system and now we're able to actually look into the guts of the volcano and what you can see on Lundy apart from a very small slither where the boat actually joins the island there's some deformed sort of metamorphic sedimentary rocks almost the whole of the rest of the island is made up predominantly of granite so the sort of thing that you sometimes find on your kitchen table but also it's cut with a series of sort of sheets of different rock types that used to be hot molten magma deep in the Earth's crust that was working its way up to the surface and feeding these volcanoes. So what we're aiming to do is sample that volcanic material and try and use that to get a very, very precise age of when that volcanic center was active. I'm Sophia Upton. 
I was an assistant warden. So it was a voluntary position where I was working on the island for three months and I was specifically looking at the seals and how it changed over the period of the pupping season. There are so many cave systems on Lundy and a lot of climbers actively go to find those caves but the seals prefer caves that go into an incline so that when the tides rise the pups don't get trapped inside. So there are specific caves that they prefer to go to just purely based on safety for the pups. You can normally hear them before you see them a lot of the time. They are very noisy. And because during pupping season, they're all on quite high alert because, I mean, they're graceful and beautiful in the water, but the minute they get on land, they're kind of just like squishy and they kind of just like flop about. But they make all, they make all sorts of sounds. They make like purring noises and they, they like have guttural screams at each other. Their voice really resonates on a lot of the cliff edges, so where there's a cove, if they're in the cove, it kind of bounces all the way up and you can hear you can hear them before you even get anywhere near the cove and you're like, ah, oh, there are seals there. How easy was it to spot them on the rocks? Despite pups being bright white, you'd assume they're quite easy to see, but they look a lot like granite, like wet granite glistening in the sun. <laughs> So you'll be like sitting there with your binoculars for like 20 minutes staring at the same rock going, is, has it moved yet? Is it, is it a seal? Could it be a seal? <laughs> and then it moves and you're like, oh yes, seal. Like an endless game of rock or seal. Basically. Yeah. <laughs> In a stone shelter on the east coast of the island, looking out to sea, I met with Dean Woodfin Jones, the current warden of Lundy. Dean has been working on the conservation and ecology of the island for the last four years, as well as leading outreach for visiting groups and maintaining the island for those that stay here to enjoy and explore. What, what brought you to Lundy then? Do you end up coming Well, I, I studied applied marine biology, so I was a marine biologist up in Edinburgh, Scotland, and I used to do quite a bit of work in and around those areas. I've always loved islands since I was a kid. My dad used to take me out to Rathlin, which is on the north coast of Ireland. And yeah, we used to go out there seeing seabirds all the time. So yeah, I fell in love with islands there and seabirds in particular. And then with my degree, I kind of went off to all these other islands studying seabirds. And then when I finished my degree, that's kind of what I realized I wanted to do. I kind of started jumping different islands, um, working with seabirds in particular uh, and conservation. I mean, the seabirds on the cliffs as well, you know, they make it their home. There's kind of guano enriched podiums you know, on the granite and just poo everywhere and all the lichens around them. It's just beautiful in the summer. Um, so, so busy. And then, of course, yeah, on this side, all the cabbage that makes its home in between all the little nooks and crannies as well. What is the Lundy cabbage? So we have an endemic plant here. It's found nowhere else in the world. 
Yeah, so it lives pretty much on this part of the east and down in some of the valleys. Is a brassica, just like uh, kind of looks a bit like, um, well, it's very similar to Isle of White cabbage, but kind of ripseed, if you ever see that in the fields. Yeah, kind of loose cabbage. And then in the kind of spring summer months, as this beautiful kind of tall stalks with these gorgeous little kind of flowers with four pale yellow flowers. And yeah, they're just absolutely beautiful. And then I found nowhere else in the world apart from here on Lundy. And they've got two beetles, very original names the Lundy cabbage flea beetle and the Lundy weevil, uh, which are also endemic. So yeah, they're found nowhere else in the world either apart from this tiny little rock. Yes. This is, yeah, quite incredible. A bit further up the coast to where we were sat talking are the remains of the island's old quarries. You will have seen that granite is not just granite. Everywhere you go, there's differences in, in the textures. Some of the granites have really large crystals in, what we call these mega crysts, these really large crystal-rich granites. All the buildings as well, north and south light. Morisco Tavern, it's all made from Lundy granite. Yeah, is, so. you, is the old light built from Lundy granite as well? I think it is, yeah, yeah, yeah. It is, yeah. So most of the buildings I think have been made from Lundy granite, but I know there's one or two um, that they had stuff brought over from. So yeah, I think it's pretty much, I mean, Morisco Tavern was made um, when the quarry company was here in the late 1850s, 60s. So yeah, a lot of the infrastructure's down to yeah, the granite on that side and yeah, the quarry workers at the time. So they got the priorities right anyway. They built a bar before uh, <laughs> the company set up. That's maybe why they didn't last that long. <laughs> yeah, I think there's just a particular energy when sheer material like that, which has been formed through millions of years, is sort of exposed. And I think that can bring a particular energy to a place for the sort of inhabitants of that space. I'm Alice Cunningham and I am predominantly a sculptor, but I guess an artist is more of an umbrella term because I also create paintings and drawings. In the last few years, probably in the last three, four years, I've concentrated on stone carving um, and I sort of describe myself as equally with a foot in the more formal, sort of aesthetic form-based um, sort of sculptural world and in the conceptual and more socially engaged world as well. What sort of really made me fall in love with stone was I was given the opportunity to go to Italy on a residency and work in the um, in the marble quarries there and I had done a little bit of stone carving in Portland before that um, but I hadn't really ever had the chance to to do that much because I was living in London and in a small studio in Hackney which doesn't lend itself to stone carving <laughs> at all. Um, yeah, so I was given this um, opportunity to go to Italy and work in and around the sort of quarries there. And that was what made me fall in love with it really, was, was this idea of how stone is extracted from the landscape on such an enormous scale. Um, and then to hold that same marble in your hands. It's very calm around there in the quarries. It's beautiful, yeah. Yeah, it's just, and the, yeah, they themselves, you know, provide fantastic little habitat. There's, there's one which we call Rupel's Quarry, because there was a very rare bird there once called Rupel's Wobbler. So yeah, we birders call it that. I don't actually think it has another name. <laughs> and then VC is very good for a bird called a ring ouzel. You get quite a lot of them. 
during migration and they breed right up in the kind of highlands of Scotland and then elsewhere in Scandinavia. They look like a blackbird but they have a white bib. And then the very last quarry is really good because it's really wet and you get sundew that grows in there which is a carnivorous plant. It eats flies and insects, kind of like a Venus flytrap. So yeah, there's lots of weird wonderful things in each of the quarry, they're all different as well. Yeah. yeah. Like I say every day is different on Lundy anyway, but particularly with me with wildlife. It's that's why I love it here so much and why it's always so exciting as well because you just you don't know what's going to turn up in the day. How many seals would you tend to see on a day? Lundy on average has 200 seals but we had gone out once and we had counted like 250 seals so it really depends because normally seals go out onto rocks to like digest and to bask in the sun so if it's not good weather for that they do prefer to stay in the water because they're able to thermoregulate better in the water because that's where they are naturally built to be. The main thing that the seals prefer is somewhere flat so what they do is during high tide they'll find somewhere flat and they'll kind of stack themselves up until low tide and then as the tide comes back up they'll go back into the water the same way. So sometimes you'll see seals in places that you couldn't imagine them getting to with, with low tide. They'd be several meters away from water and they would just be sitting on like a teeny tiny bit of a cliff edge just like lying there in the sun. At the end of March 2020, because of the national lockdown, the island was closed off to visitors and didn't reopen again until later in July. Dean talked about how the wildlife of Lundy started to reclaim the spaces often occupied by people, including the deer that lived on the island. They come up dawn and dusk onto the top of the island when people aren't about, but um, during shutdown, because there's only what, 25 of us on the island, they were just coming into the village. They weren't fussed. Like, we could walk within metres of them. They just didn't care. And they kind of, I think, maybe potentially learned that, you know, the islanders were no threat at all. So, yeah, they were a lot more relaxed during lockdown. And then, obviously, as well, the island just went wild. It, uh, all the footpaths with, you know, obviously that reduced footfall. Um, nature was really kind of just trying to reclaim those areas, which was which is amazing to see. Uh, but, yeah, quite a bit of work to kind of keep on top of. Yeah. Yeah, it, was, it was amazing to see the island in that, that kind of setting, because I don't think... Anyone's kind of seen it in that light for a very long time. Yeah, there's always been lots of people here doing, you know, either with the visitors since that kind of heaven, heaven area in the 1830s onwards, or you know, with the quarry company, all the people who used to work up there, you know, taking the granite off to say other areas of the southwest and that. There's always been lots of people here, so kind of felt maybe a little bit of what Lundy may have been like, you know, with you know, just a really handful of islanders maybe back during you know, Mesolithic times and all the guys were up on the north of the island hunting and gathering up there. Yeah, I felt yeah, like I was going back in time a little bit. <laughs> during my conversation with Morgan at the University of Oslo, I asked him what the Earth would have looked like during the geological period that created Lundy. Plate tectonics is going on all the time um, and we've had some uh, big... Uh, breakups and collisions between plates uh, in the last 500 million years or so. But if we're going back just 56, then we have more or less 
the same dynamic, uh, like the plates in the same sort of positions as they are today. But very, very importantly for, for our work is that at this time period in particular, there is no permanent ice at either pole. So there's no ice sheet uh, on Antarctica. There's no northern hemisphere uh, ice sheets in Greenland or uh, North America or anything like that. So uh, it's, it's a very, very warm climate and in particular there's uh, there's evidence from Svalbard that there were temperate forests and crocodiles living in Svalbard at the time and Svalbard hasn't changed much in terms of uh, its latitude between then and now so effectively we're seeing conditions that can support crocodiles at 70 74 degrees north or something so that's that's very very interesting and very strange it was, it was a little bit different. Um, it's around the time that mammals started to fill the e- evolutionary niches and begin to take over from the birds and the dinosaurs in terms of the apex predators. Um, yeah, so it was a very interesting time. I don't know what's more terrifying, picturing Svalbard with loads of crocodiles or with loads of polar bears. <laughs> po- polar bears are worse. <laughs> polar bears are more terrifying, yeah. Lundy... It, it's just impressive the seals can even pup there because a lot of places aren't really good habitats for pupping because of how the tides work. And despite the island kind of going north to south, it does have a curve in it. And that's why the east coast is better because it's more sheltered from from like the winds and the waves. It's kind of got a more like C shape into into the east which i'm sure is probably why it's less sheer cliffs on that side of the island as well just because it's battered less than the west side of the island it's quite interesting to think of like the parallels between the seal community kind of thriving there and the human population that have lived on the island you know it's quite a a hard island to exist on especially in terms of access from the sea it's quite impressive how both species have adapted and kind of thrived on it. Ladies and gentlemen, Your attention is drawn to safety instructions displayed in public areas. Those include the method of donning the life jacket. Life jackets can be found under your seats in the forward suite and after suite and will be distributed by a crew member in the event of emergency. The general alarm signal is either seven or more short blasts, followed by one prolonged blast on the ship's whistle, or two tone siren. If you hear the signal, stay where you are. It's telling the ship's crew what action to take. Yeah, because you have to get on a boat to get to the island, it does kind of remind you of, you know, a sort of almost like a Jurassic Park-esque kind of area. And you, you arrive on the jetty and you're sort of exposed to this beautiful, quite quite dramatic scenery. Um, obviously, the granites form fairly pronounced cliffs predominantly uh, around the island. So there's there's actually very few places that you could land a boat on the island. And that's also one of the reasons why there's a whole bunch of shipwrecks around the island. I, I, I noticed when I was in the bar in the island, they have a map of all of the different shipwrecks that have happened. Partly, actually, the, the geology, the rocks of the island are in part due to its difficulties in terms of the seaways, because actually the volcanic rocks extend a, a little bit more offshore. And so the waterways in and around the island 
have some sort of treacherous shallows and so on. So it's not just the island itself. It's the very fact that the expression of the island continues just in the shallow subsurface of the water that makes it quite complicated from, from a seagoing perspective. The Atlantic project that Dougal and Morgan have been working on began in 2017. It has been looking into the potential correlation between the formation of the North Atlantic Igneous Province, the volcanic activity that formed Lundy, and a period of global warming and climate change events that occurred between the boundary of two geological epochs, or ages, called the Paleocene and the Eocene. This time, as you said, it's, it's known as the Paleocene-Eocene Thermal Maximum. So it's a period in the Earth's history, around about 55.8 million years ago, where there was a dramatic shift and the temperatures increased quite dramatically. And it's thought that one of the triggers of this particular activity is down to this increase of volcanic activity associated with the breakup process of Europe from, from the North American continent. And again, what we're trying to do here is um, many of these rocks have already been dated, so we know roughly what their ages are. But we have techniques in Oslo where we can get the ages down to around about a sort of plus minus 30,000 year window. And, and if we can do that, if we can achieve these very, very high precision uh, ages, instead of just knowing that we've got a cluster of volcanoes all the way up the coast, up into Scotland and offshore that will have fed these ash horizons, we can potentially pinpoint exactly you know, the smoking gun, if you will, of the volcanoes that cause the ashes. And in doing so, we're, we're kind of trying to unravel what exactly was happening a little bit just before this um, time period. So around about sort of 57, 56 million years ago, and then over this uh, Paleocene-Eocene thermal maximum time, when we see this dramatic shift in the climate. In 2018, artist Alice Cunningham created a body of work through the University of Bristol's Earth Art Fellowship Programme under the self-elected title of What Does Climate Change Look Like? So over six months, I worked with lots of different scientists having a series of interviews that started out asking them about their practice um, and asking them what kind of visual cues they used to talk to their students about their topic and about climate change and, and to kind of impart information. You know, I met with chemists and geologists, oceanographers, people looking at the sort of social aspect of it. Um, you know, glaciologists is such a wealth of information and them expertise at the university. So it was really interesting to hear about what they were looking into. I was totally sort of blown away by that. But also to, to look at the visual, you know, that was that was kind of where our understanding began to kind of resonate and cross over was the visual material. Yeah, the visual language, really. That's something that really was a surprise to me was actually that as a sculptor and as climate scientists, we had a very similar visual sort of language that we could kind of understand and share through the series of interviews. I then sort of took away a lot of the information and these these sort of visual language that all these different scientists were using to talk about climate change, talk about these very, very complicated, very detailed topics. The kind of headlines that I came away with to work under as an artist to produce then my own body of work and my own sort of response to all of their information were these subtopics of unprecedented rate of change, unstable objects, tipping points, and the kind of study of fractures fractures on, and lines on a surface to try and impart information. 
there's one very special climate event within the general Paleocene-Eocene time, and it's right at the boundary. In fact, that's the reason why the boundary is there. So we had climatic conditions are about 10 degrees warmer than now worldwide in the late Paleocene, so about 56 million years ago. And then we have a four to five degree global warming event that occurred very, very quickly and uh, lasted for 100 to 200,000 years. So the PTM, as it's called, the Paleocene-Eocene Thermal Maximum, uh, this is the closest natural analogue that we have to what may happen in the future with today's warming because it was caused by a, a very large release of carbon to the atmosphere in a very short space of time. And one of the hypotheses that we want to test is if the North Atlantic Igneous province could be responsible. One of the most important things about the PTM is that there is still some uncertainty about what caused it. And uh, if we get a better understanding of what caused it, we would have a better understanding of how the Earth system is going to change in the next thousand years or so. There are several competing hypotheses for what was the main uh, driver of the PTM. Uh, if it's the, the North Atlantic that's the most dominant thing, then we are looking at a scenario where we can perhaps feel like we can do more to fight uh, global warming and try and mitigate our impact on the environment. But essentially what we really need is a better understanding of like, how, how the Earth system can be perturbed. Well, I think Lundy just ties into the rest of the country in a lot of that ways. I mean, my kind of climate knowledge in particular is with kind of distribution of marine life and how that kind of ties in with the food chain. So we are kind of particularly worried with a lot of our seabird species in particular in the country at the moment. We are seeing massive declines in some of the species on Lundy, particularly things like black-legged kittiwake. We used to nest here in, you know, in tens of thousands, but we've only got you know roughly about 300 pairs now on the island. Um, and I think a lot of that is down to climate change, unfortunately. So it's it's quite a complicated kind of thing, but um, it kind of comes down to the very basis of the food chain and how things like plankton are changing their distribution. Certain copepods in particular, so little shrimp in the waters, there's different species now that are kind of moving northwards, which tend to kind of hold the food chain together here in the south uh, and elsewhere as well in the, in the country. And we're starting to see that shift northwards now and a more southern kind of copepod which tends to appear much later in the season becoming more dominant which isn't very good for the fish that need then to feed on them and then subsequently the seabirds so we are losing a lot of our birds because of the way the climate is changing and a lot of the other distributions as well where birds things like curlews and lapwings and things they used to breed a lot here in the south of England um, we're all disappearing from here and kind of moving northwards now and we're seeing a lot of southern species which never used to be here kind of turning up and yeah, making their home now so it is changing um, well yeah pretty much the whole dynamic of kind of what's going on wildlife wise in, in a lot of places in the country including Monday. If there is a correlation between these two events how would that knowledge help us in tackling current global warming? It could possibly give us a way out in terms of um, mitigation strategies as well, because one of the ways to 
take carbon out of the atmosphere is by weathering silicate rock, which the North Atlantic Igneous Province is a large amount of. When you take a, a lava that's cooled and formed rock and you erode it with water and then you form clays and uh, other elements that get taken by rivers to the oceans, the stuff that gets taken by rivers to the oceans is the perfect building blocks for uh, little sea creatures to make their shells out of. And most of those shells are, are carbonate. So if you can get enough nutrients to the oceans, then you start being able to allow those ecosystems to consume uh, uh, carbon uh, into carbonate shells. And those, those shells sink, and then you have uh, depleted the atmosphere in CO2. So one of the biggest negative feedbacks to warming is the erosion of silicate material. And uh, the basalts of the large igneous provinces are the easiest of those silicates to erode. So it's possible as a mitigation strategy to try to sort of geoengineer, um, essentially break mountains apart and uh, fertilize oceans and stuff like this. So it's quite extreme stuff, but there is uh, there's several ways that can uh, that we can do this going forward. It's quite infectious the enthusiasm that most geologists have. I mean, it's not a, a profession that you kind of fall into accidentally. It's a real love for the landscape. Um, and I think it's, yeah, it rubs off. <laughs> it's just amazing how they read it. Because, you know, I'm used to reading the art world or critiquing artworks and visual culture. And, you know, I've sort of, I would say I'm a, becoming a bit of an expert at that. You know, that's what I've been trained in and spent, you know, spent a lot of time doing. But they critique the landscape, you know, they critique the natural world and look at these rocks and analyse the rocks and, and kind of the history of what's there. And I find that fascinating. As humans, we all, you know, we all love to communicate and kind of have dialogue. And it's just that I think for different people, that dialogue is is in a different, you know, we're experts in different fields of dialogue. And as artists, it's it's visual, you know, that's how we communicate often best. and you know a topic so important as climate change you know we need to sort of honor it and and give it our best shot in trying to talk about it in all sorts of ways so that we can bring everyone into that discussion i guess it must be sort of a bit of a microscope being here because because you can monitor things so closely yeah because indeed, it's an island yeah. and you can you can track these changes perhaps far more accurately than you could do on mainland exactly yeah 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 uh, and i know well, we're trying to get a lot of a lot of marine studies kind of put in place again now. But we've got a lot of quite unusual and quite rare invertebrates that kind of live around Lundy under the water, and things like corals, pink sea fans, and cut corals and things. So they're kind of on their kind of northernmost distribution here now in Lundy. A lot of monitoring is done in the past, and we're trying to kind of re well bring that back up again to see how that's changed now, and potentially if there is with kind of changes and subtle changes in sea temperature. Are we actually seeing a lot more of those southern species around the island now? And are we kind of losing the kind of more northern species or the species that we would think that should be here normally? Are we starting to lose them or are they starting to change um, due to yeah, changes in yeah, sea temperature as well? So we, we do have temperature loggers here, so we, we do actually record the sea temperature as well out at sea. And then yeah, we tie that in with you know what's going on species-wise, abundance and kind of distribution around the island. Yeah. 
because you always think about the decline of certain species, but not the influence of new species kind of travelling yeah, to indeed, warmer yeah, climates. Exactly, yeah. It could, could look very different in the future, couldn't it? Yeah, it could so. indeed, yeah, as I say, yeah. Particularly with birds anyway, I mean, because they are quite visual and, you know, a lot of people are so into birds, it's, it's quite... They're, they're a really good environmental indicator. I mean, it's almost like a ship, Lundy. And, um, in shape. Yeah, I suppose in shape, and and also the way that the way that the landscape changes over time. You know, I suppose how long will it be there? You know, and we think of it as permanent, when in fact it's constantly moving. You know. I mean, the island itself, I've seen a lot of changes with staff and people coming over and researchers. Yeah, there's, there's always so much going on here. It's, uh, it's kind of always forever changing little bits, if you know what I mean. But at the same time, Lundy always stays quite the same. It's kind of old school. <laughs> yeah. I think that's something so charming about that, though. Yeah, it is, yeah. And that's why I love islands. It's a kind of... Life's a little bit more simple, but you, you work a lot harder, I think, and uh, you're much more, well, you're a lot closer to nature. Our day is kind of dictated by the weather, so I feel a lot more connected to nature that way. Mm. The island decides on what we can do, kind of work-wise, each day. I find that very refreshing, yeah. There's not going to be one saviour to what we're about to face. If we're going to do it properly, we need to reduce the amount that we are emitting to the atmosphere, and we need a, a mixture of natural and synthetic uh, measures to be able to take it out of the atmosphere as well. So this includes reforestation, trying to encourage silicate weathering wherever possible, um, so there's, there's, there's no one answer to the problem, but I think we're at the position now where the science is sure enough that we, we understand the problem and we have a good handle on a myriad of possible solutions. It just needs the investment and dedication of policymakers to be able to make it happen. Geology is mind-boggling, isn't it? The way that time and, you know, getting a sense of it when our time is so short. If you could jump 50 million years into the future, our, our present would be a, a slither of something somewhere that you could look at and analyse. I'd love to be able to do that to see the coast or to see what was going on. I hear we might get in for rough weather tomorrow. So I said to go and check yep. how we're going to Yeah, I don't think it's been 100% confirmed yet, but I'm, I'm looking at the forecast. I think you know, you're going off on a helicopter tomorrow. Oh, <laughs> Which is really cool. So yeah, you'll see London from the air. Yeah. And obviously then you're not going to have a a bumpy two-hour crossing, you're going to have seven minutes in a helicopter and then... Yeah. I mean, I'd rather forego the... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, the helicopter's good fun. Yeah.
that. Thanks to Dean Woodfin-Jones and Sophia Upton on Lundy Island. Artists Rodney Harris and Alice Cunningham in Bristol. Professor Dougal Jerram and Dr Morgan Jones at the Centre for Earth Evolution and Dynamics at the University of Oslo. Rowan Bishop, Jack Gibbon and Jessica Aikerman at Bricks. And to AN Artist Bursaries 2020. This podcast was brought to you by Bricks. Bricks brings together the people of Bristol through collaborative art projects, public realm producing, community-led co-design and securing the spaces our communities need to thrive. On our site, you'll also find a blog post with links and images related to the subjects covered in this episode and profiles of all our artists and projects. So go check it out at bricksbristol.org. As a new, independent charity, we rely on the support of people like you so that we can support our communities. If you can, please consider supporting our work through donating the price of a sandwich, buying a tote bag or purchasing an artwork from our online shop. Big thanks to Arts Council England and National Lottery Players for funding this episode as part of the BRICS Artist Programme.